Timothy 5. 1 Timothy 5. We've been slowly going through this book, and little by little, just kind of working our way verse by verse through this. And what I want to teach on this evening has to do with how we take care of elders and widows, how we handle elders and widows, how we interact with elders in the church and with widows. So in 1 Timothy chapter 5, beginning with verse number 1, Rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father, and the younger men as brethren, the elder women as mothers, the younger as sisters with all purity. Honor widows that are widows indeed. All right, let's have a word of prayer. So, Father, we thank you that we've been able to slowly go through this book verse by verse, and we are grateful for how you have spoken to us through each passage. Tonight, as we get into the Word, we do need you to give us ears to hear, help us to think about things maybe we've never considered before, but more than anything else, let us grow in grace and in knowledge. Help us to apply these things in the way that we live. In Jesus' name we pray and everyone said, Amen, Amen. In the previous chapter, we taught about the last days, what godly behavior looks like in the last days, and we explained that there would be a departure from the faith. We told you that there would be doctrines of devils and seducing spirits. We even explained to you that Paul wanted us to stay away from old wives' tales and fables, and then we spent some time looking at the fact that Paul says that bodily exercise profits little. Now, you'll notice then at the, the second half of chapter 4, he's telling Timothy not to allow anyone to despise his youth. So we understand from Scripture God uses younger individuals for specific tasks. He gave him the command in verse 13 to pay attention to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine, and not to quickly lay his hands on anyone. Now, some people take that to mean simply ordaining people for the ministry, but you lay hands on people in the Bible for more than ordaining people. You lay hands on people to bless them. You lay hands on people to pray for them to be made whole. So when we come now to chapter 5, he starts an entirely different discussion, and he's talking about an elder. So what is an elder? An elder can be a person that holds a position in a church. It could be a minister. It could be an older person, elderly in age. What Paul says is don't rebuke that kind of a person. Now, what is a rebuke? That is when you chastise someone or you speak to them sharply. He says, but to treat them as a father. How would you interact with your father? How did you speak to your father? The Middle Eastern custom is to honor their father. Now, Western civilization is not like the Middle East or like Japan, which essentially is built on an honor culture, which is to say, or I should say honor principle, which is to say 
even if you're wrong or the older people are wrong, you're not going to tell the older people to their face that they're wrong. And you'll be very careful with how you even disagree with them. So when I lived in Japan for a year back in 1988, you would always see how deferential young people were to the older people. Well, of course, it used to be that way in this uh, in this nation here. If an older person walked in, there wasn't a place to sit. You'd find all kinds of people jumping up real fast to see if they could make way for them. Or if there was an older person who was needing help across the street, somebody would probably try to help them. That kind of a thing doesn't exist in certain places in America, but that kind of honor still exists in other places. So older people, you don't want to rebuke and treat them bad. So you don't cuss out an older person. You don't raise your voice and yell at an older person as if they're your age or your child. You're to treat them as you would your father. Now, I guess a lot of this has to do with what kind of father you had and whether or not you honored or respected your father. I know for us, we respected our father whether we wanted to or not because he knew how to command respect. Well, you, you shouldn't have to forcibly uh, elicit respect from people. It should be given to them naturally. In fact, one of the Ten Commandments is, honor your mother and your father that your days on the earth will be long. So how we handle older people is important. And then it says the younger men as brethren. So we treat younger individuals like they're our siblings, like they're our brethren. So I'm very, very particular about how I interact with older people in the churches. I've never yelled at anybody older in the church. I've never yelled at anybody my age in the church. We don't waste our time doing that because that's not going to bring about any any good thing. But I do want older people to know that they are loved and they are honored and they are respected. Now, in a few verses, we're going to get into what happens when a person becomes a widow and whether or not the church should take care of them or the children should take care of them or either of them should take care of them. And you'll see that from the Scripture, and even then that comes all the way back to this whole principle of honor that I'm talking about. So in verse 2, the elder women treat as mothers. So I treat my mother as if she's a special lady, and she is. So the older ladies in the church should also be treated like they're special. We shouldn't be disrespectful to them. So when the older ladies are needing help, then, of course, we want to be a blessing to them. What if somebody needs help around the house? What if somebody needs help with their bills and they're older and something difficult like that? Then Christians should go out of their way to be a blessing to them. And when he says elder women as mothers, let's never forget, your mother and father sacrifice for you in ways that you and I don't even really understand. So to be honest with you, if we consider those sacrifices, there should rarely, if ever, be a time, if it's in our ability, where we say to our parents, no. 
Do you remember when, when your kids were involved with sports and played all of these different games and stuff and the sacrifices moms and dads made in order for the kids to be able to do that? And the kids don't understand that. Some of them grow up, become teenagers, and don't even appreciate it. And they yell at their parents, they're disrespectful to their parents without considering that it was mom or dad who at times took a second job or took some extra work to make a few extra dollars and then worked from sunup to sundown only to later come home, try to make it to a game, and then having made it to a game, still get home and try to get a little bit of food in their body or make something for the family. The wives oftentimes come home after a day's work, still clean and still try to cook, and then here's some little kid that sits down at the table, looks at the food, and complains about how they don't like what was made today. That is not honoring a mom and a dad. We should not be that way, and young people certainly shouldn't be that way. So we treat the older folks in the church as mothers. When I visit uh, older ladies, I do treat them like they are my mom. That's the appropriate way to act, and that's how all of us should act. And the younger, younger women as sisters with all purity maintaining a relationship with people that are younger so that there won't give rise any accusation at all. How would you want your sister to be treated by other young men? This is how we should engage and interact with other young ladies also. So Paul is very interested in the interaction of male and female, the younger and the older. The younger with the younger. <clears throat> it's important. With all purity. In the Middle East and in Bible times, it was important to preserve the chastity of the young ladies. Now that isn't to say it wasn't important to, pre to preserve the chastity of the young men, because, I mean, obviously if the young ladies are preserving themselves, you'll preserve that also with the young men. But the same way... I didn't like it when young boys and sometimes my friends showed up knocking on the door because they wanted to see my little sister. Then we should, we should be that protective when it comes to our ladies and younger people in the church. Now, I'm a, I'm a different kind of a pastor, I know, but through the years that we've been here, and we've had a lot of young ladies grow up in this church and go off and get married and move and all of these different things, and, and, and whenever there's been a young man that's kind of drifted in here because he was getting close to some young lady in the church, I always had my eyes on him. I was watching. And, and I always made sure that they knew that I was watching. They, 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 they understood that. You say, why are you like that? Because he's giving us these illustrations to show that we should preserve ourselves like we're family. If I was out in town somewhere at a game or in a store, and I saw a young man or somebody disrespect Dorothy or Becky or some other lady in here, I promise you I wouldn't be silent. I'd say something. I know I would. So in the interest of maintaining a good family, Paul says we interact with one another and treat others as though they're special to us. And you are. And we should be. 
are older men. You're an elder to me. As a pastor in the church, I'm an elder to the congregation. So in verse 3, it says, honor the widows. Now, this was a specific category that even in the Old Testament, God told the children of Israel to pay attention to, widows and orphans. What is a widow? Somebody who's lost a spouse. Honor the widows that are widows indeed, who have lost a spouse. Typically, through death is what we're talking about here. And the reason he says indeed is because people can... Ladies could have become single for a number of different reasons in ancient times just like today. But, but here we're talking about the woman who has lost her husband and death has come. And this is in the church. But verse 4, if any widow has children or nephews, reason brings out nephews because all ladies don't have children, but if any widows have children or nephews, let them, that's plural, talking about the children and nephews, learn first to show piety at home. So in ancient times, there was no Social Security. There was no welfare. There was no aid to dependent children. You couldn't go somewhere and find WIC for mothers who had children. Because of that, families had to maintain relationships even when they didn't get along. It's not like that now. Because people receive Social Security and have their retirements and their IRAs and other things like that, sometimes they get older and they don't even care if they have a relationship with their kids or family members. Because ultimately, here's what they'll say. I don't need you. You don't need me. I don't have to ask you for anything, and vice versa. Not in ancient times. In ancient times, people knew when they had children that there was coming a point in their life where they probably would be older and become feebler and in all likelihood would need their kids to look after them or their nephews and nieces to look after them. So you consider yourself blessed to have been raised in this generation that we're living right now because some of you in here may be in a predicament where you are set for your winter years where you don't need to ask anybody for help. But not so with the widows in the early church. If any widow has children or nephews, let them first show piety at home. That means the, the children have to be taught to honor the parents. It has to be instilled in them that the way we're caring for you, when we get older, you'll care for us. Have to teach them that. And if we don't get that inside of them, then when they get older, they'll be selfish and they won't care, without a doubt. And they should learn this at the house. I've seen, I've seen kids that um, if they have to go to their grandmas or grandpas or great-grandma or great-grandpas to cut their grass, they won't go unless a great-grandma or somebody gives them some money. And I've had plenty of people in church tell me that. I'd have my grandkids or great-grandkids come to my yard, but I have to pay them in order for them to do it. I can tell you right now, from the time I was probably seven until I graduated high school, my grandmother's grass was cut by me, and I never got a dime, never asked for a dime. And if I would have asked for a dime, I would have heard it in both ears from my mom. Yeah. 
teaching me this is my mother and you're going to honor my mother in the same way I honor her and in the same way you honor me. So according to verse 4 then, piety or reverence is to be learned in the house, but somebody has to teach it. Somebody has to teach it. If we don't give this kind of instruction at home, where will they learn it? Where will they learn it? Mom and dad have to have these kinds of conversations with the little ones. And you'll see there in verse 4 it says, let them learn to show piety and to repay their what? Parents. Now, I wish you parents would have been keeping a bill of every dime you spent on your kids and you would have kept a wage per hour for how much, how much you know, energy went into you taking care of them and, and then when they turned 18 or started having their kids, you could have just showed them the bill and said, let the repayment begin right now. I mean, it's been, been hard to look at, look at that and do that, you know, because mom and dads do so much. But the child then, according to verse 4, should recognize his or her indebtedness to their parents. Yeah. All of the things that Barry and Chris did for their little ones, all of the hours on the road that Jim had in traveling and Miriam driving a bus, if the kids knew the sacrifices that were made, you would think people would honor them. Paul said, let the repayment for the parents be instilled in them in the house. He said, this is good and acceptable before God. I think all the parents would say amen there. See? Good and acceptable. And, and maybe, the, maybe for Christmas, then you should take this verse and you should write it out in the cards that you give to your kids and then put a little circle around the word repay and then let them kind of stare at that for a little while. Now, verse 5, it says, Now she that's a widow indeed and desolate, see, doesn't have a whole lot of help and doesn't have a whole lot of resources, but trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. So here is a woman who is a widow but is also godly in her behavior. And she conducts herself in a way that befits a Christian. That kind of widow, the church should take an interest in. Not verse 6 here, but she that lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. So the person who, who has become a widow and, and all of a sudden believes, okay, I've got Frank in the ground, it's party time. That, that kind of a widow is not the one that the church is going to be thinking about. Yeah, it, it, it should be the one that has godly behavior. Now, we've all probably met people whose marriages were so bad that when the husband died, the wife was pleased. I know I've encountered that. Yeah, I've encountered that. And, and vice versa, where the wife was so bad that the husband was pleased. 
But if a person truly is a Christian, then once a spouse dies, they shouldn't run off into the world and like the prodigal son, spend all of their living in the world and then later come back and say, Church, I need your help. Remember the sort of prodigal son? He came back and the older brother was a little unhappy with the party they had for him. And then dad said to the older brother, he said, look, you've been with me. Everything I have belongs to you. But your brother, he was dead. That is to say he was running around in the world doing all these carnal things. But now, because he's repented and his mind has come back, he's alive. So the person who's a widow and lives in pleasure, according to verse 6, is dead. Pursuing the world, chasing the world, carnal in their mentality. But verse 7, these things give in charge or command that they may be blameless. So Paul is after the preservation of the reputation and the character of the people in the home. And he said, if any doesn't provide for his own, especially those of his own house, he is denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Many years ago in this church right here, there was somebody needed some extra money, needed some employment. And so my wife, who at the time was going to college in Hastings, had mentioned, or it might have been after that, but she had mentioned to this particular individual that they have a job at the college, and I forget what they were paying, but it was definitely a job with some benefits. And when mention was made to this individual, here's what the, the person said. I can't take a job like that because that will put me over the amount of money I need to be making for welfare. Then I'll have to actually buy the braces for my kids' teeth. See? So here's the mentality. The mentality is I should expect others to take care of me while I'm claiming Jesus as my Lord and lifting my hands and worshiping him, saying how much I love him. Look at it again in verse 8. If any doesn't provide for his own, especially for those of his own house, he is denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. We deny our faith by our actions. With our mouths, we say, God, we love you. With our mouths, a person can say, I'm interested in the king, but then the way that we live undermines all of that because they're looking for somebody else to provide for their house. It's, it's like uh, one time this gentleman had had some children, and then he wanted one of his older children to babysit some of the younger children. And the older child said to the dad, I'm not babysitting those children. I didn't tell you to have those children. Well, dad wanted to rip and run the streets. And the older one didn't want to be stuck in the house having to play babysitter. But how many times has it been seen in the United States of America where the parents may want to go and run around and grandparents, again, are, are raising babies all over one more time? Happens often. Yeah, happens often. But the work ethic that Paul is trying to get into Timothy to teach to the people is very, very simply this. If we have faith in God, we work to do what we can to take care of our homes and ourselves. That, that, that's, that's what we do, whatever it takes. 
I've told you through the years that whenever I've needed extra money and prayed, God sends me more revivals. He sends me more camp meetings and things like that that I can do. And, and other people, when they're praying about extra cash, God may provide for them extra jobs, extra things they can do on the side. See, God always has a way to look after his people if we'll talk to him. If we'll pray and say, Lord, you see the needs I have with my family here are the resources that are available to me presently. I need you to expand those resources. You begin to pray like that, he'll do it. He'll do it. He may not do it overnight, but he'll do it. And once he begins to do it, remember to give him all the glory and all the praise. All of us are getting older. And all of us one day will be old enough to be in the grave. So all of these verses here are relevant to where we live right now. Verse 9 says, Don't let a widow be put in a list or on a list or taken into the number who's under the age of 60 years of age having been the wife of one man. That is to say, if she's younger, she can probably remarry. She can probably remarry. But if she's above 60 and she's a widow indeed and she's a godly lady and she has given herself to prayer and walking with the king, then the church is obligated to somehow assist. I didn't say spend the rest of her life taking care of her and every one of her bills. I said assist. Assist. What's happening here? 60 years old, having been the wife of one man. Well, if she'd been married several times, she probably has multiple streams of income and other things that are flowing into her life. See, that, that's what happens. You, you understand that today in the United States of America, somebody can marry a person, be married for seven or eight years, depending on what state it is in, and they'll get something when they split up, no-fault divorce. But then in other states, if you've been married 10 years or longer, then a person is going to get some alimony. So if a person has had 40 years of marriage, talking about ladies in particular, 40 years of marriage, and to each marriage been married, to each person been married 10 years, that's four streams of income right there if they end up going to court because that's alimony coming four times. As a Christian then, He's saying the individual who is indeed a widow having been the wife of one person. You look after her if she's above the age of 60 and pay attention. So, so I've often uh, tried to do this. If I was under the impression that there was somebody I was pastoring that was destitute, I'd visit, and when I visit, I'd go in the kitchen. I'd open up the refrigerator, and I'd look to see if there was food in the refrigerator. You say, why? Because if there isn't, I'm going to get some. I'm going to get some. You say, well, that's nosy. Well, whatever, but hungry people do like to eat. They do. They, they like to eat. Becky said she thinks she might want some pig's feet. I thought that's what I heard her say, something along that line there. Okay, so 60 years and old, we really pay attention. We listen. We watch. 
He said, well, Pastor, what, what happens when the bulk of the church is over 60? Then everybody has to pay attention. And everybody has to watch because everyone is in a different category with their finances and with their lifestyle. And it should never be that all of us come together to worship and to sing and magnify God and know that there's somebody next to us that doesn't have shoes, doesn't have clothes, doesn't have food, and then we don't feel compelled to give them something. Even if you don't give them cash, you can still bless them. I found as a pastor, sometimes giving cash isn't the best thing because if a person has bad character and abuses their own money, you put yours in their hand, they'll abuse that. So we'll typically go pay a water bill or food is needed, get the food or something like that. This way, you don't have to run into the whole issue of, well, the church gave towards this and it wasn't used for that. And believe me when I tell you, our churches have done that before. We have contributed to a specific issue. The money never went to that specific issue. That means the issue then came about one more time. So you live and you learn. Yeah, you you live and you learn. I remember when I first started here with the, the fellowship, there would be people who would come into town, then they would come here to church, and then they would say they had a need. And so people would turn around and bless them, then later on they hit another church. Well, the preachers, we all got together and we start talking about this, and we said, look, here the easiest thing to do would be to work with the local sheriff and just send any transient person to the sheriff's office so that the sheriff's office can deal with them. Now, it's not like they're going to run a background check, but we just made sure that at the sheriff's office, that's how you got a night at the hotel and a meal at a restaurant here in town. Well, of course, when you say that to people that are transient, you go up there to the sheriff's office, then they never go to the sheriff's office and they never come back again. There are people who hitchhike across America going to churches and collecting monies in midweek Bible studies and Sunday meetings, and they make it from New York to California simply because they do that. It's important to know know these things from a scriptural standpoint, how, how we're supposed to respond. So we look after those that are in the church. Verse 10, listen to the testimony of the widow. Well reported of for good works, if she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she have relieved the afflicted, if she's diligently followed every good work. It doesn't say if she's cast out devils. It doesn't say if she's healed the sick. It doesn't say if she's spoken with tongues. All it says is that she has a report of good works. Now, ancient times, they didn't have Holiday Inn Expresses. And there was no Green Acres in Ephesus where Timothy was pastor, which means... If you were a Christian traveling through a particular place, you knocked on the door of a Christian home, and you asked, was there a place they could put you up? A spare room, a place in a shed, or whatever kind of, you know, place they might have had for uh, people who were passing through. 
And then, of course, people traveled, so they wore sandals. They didn't have the covered shoes like you and I wear. So people walked where they went with sandals. The roads were dusty. They weren't paved in concrete or tar like we know of. So any kind of trip along the mountain, along the roadside, certainly is going to be dusty. And when you finally got to where you were going, it felt good to sit down and somebody bring a bowl of water and then sit there and wash your feet. Wash your feet. That's what they were looking for. That means the next time I visit you, I'll be expecting that. So let bowl out. Okay. <laughs> and my sandals. <laughs> but look at verse 11. But the younger widows refused, for when they had begun to wax wanton, old English for growing careless against Christ, they will marry. So the younger ones below 60, 30s, 20s, 40s, whatever, they're giving themselves to godliness and praying and seeking the face of God. But for some people, that gets old. And then they start thinking about the caress of a gentleman, wanting to have affection again. And if they're not careful and their heart goes in the opposite direction, they turn, totally turn and walk away from God and head back out there into the world. And this is what Paul is talking about. And this is why he said in verse 12, verse 12, having condemnation or damnation because they have cast off their first place. See, they said they were going to be a widow, wanted to be taken care of, and they wanted to, to, to be fine and okay. But yet you can see here that they've walked away from what they formerly believed. Now, you might not think that this happens, but I'll tell you, there are plenty of spouses who come to church only because their spouse is alive and leads them to church. Yep, I've seen that plenty of times. Let the husband die. Let the wife die. The other party, their relationship with God fizzles, and before you know it, you can't even find them in church at all. And then when you ask what's going on, oh, just been, you know, doing this or doing that, and, 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 and remember now, they cast off their faith. See, they threw it off. They chose. They made a decision to go in another direction. And Paul is trying to tell Timothy, you've got to understand that in the makeup of humans, there are people who will serve God because of what they can get, like the people who came to Jesus because they got the loaves of bread. And there are people who serve God because out of a pure heart they want to draw close to God. And there are other people who serve God because the circumstances are favorable to them. Job's wife. And even though we're talking about widows here, this isn't all against ladies. I don't want you to think we're just, just, just hitting on that. This is just the context of what we're talking about. And so in verse 13 he says, And besides, they learn to be idle. Ooh, that's not good. Wandering about from house to house. And not only idle, but tattlers, gossip. Also, busybodies. Woo! Goodness, goodness gracious. Speaking things which they ought not. I'm so glad I don't pastor any ladies like these. Yeah, not like these here. Yes, but in this context, we're talking about ladies. Okay, so 
So verse 14, I will therefore that the younger women marry, bear children, guide the house, give no occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. So Paul obviously doesn't want to see the younger ladies single, even if they have little ones. He does want to see them have children to raise up godly seed. And he wants them to guide the house. Notice the power that is given to the ladies with respect to the home. Now, now most people, when they read this, they instantly turn to the uh, feminist attitude and says, this is all entirely chauvinistic because women had no rights at all. That is not true legally in ancient Rome, and it certainly isn't true today. But a lady does have power in that home if she'll exercise it. Now, a man, if you, if you let him have all the power, then some dominating man will exercise all the power. But I think it's important in that house to let the economy and everything else be done by that wife so that that wife won't be like many wives we've seen out here in Nebraska. When the husband dies, the wife doesn't even know what to do with herself now. She's never paid a bill. She's never put gas in the car. She's never wrote a check, that kind of a thing. So my father taught me as a kid, he said, look, I've made sure that if anything ever happens to me, your mom knows how to handle all the affairs. She knows where all the bills are. She pays all the bills. She handles all of those. So I modeled the same thing when I got married. My wife handles all the finances. I go away, travel, and preach, come back. She makes the deposits for the checks. She knows what bills need to be taken care of, when they need to be paid, what time of the month. She handles all of that. Pretty much, I just live in the house. I just do as I'm told. Whatever allowance she gives me, that's what I have, and I'm just happy and pleased to be able to have a few dollars in my pocket. But notice verse 14, guide the house. And I wish more men would allow their wives to do that. And being unable to go back in time, we still should do what we can to make sure people have some ability to function and live today. We need to think about, men I'm talking, we need to think about what life would be like for them if we weren't here. Could they function? Could they make it? Would they know what to do? I know what life for me would be like if she wasn't here. I'd be back to visiting all of your homes again at breakfast, lunch, supper, snack time. I'd be coming with you when it's time to go shopping. I'd just be hanging out with you. Every time you look up, the pastor would be out there on the front lawn just moping, standing there, standing in the window. And eventually somebody would say, somebody please bring that poor pastor in here because he don't even know when to come in out of the rain. Well, okay, look at verse 15. Paul continues and he says, For some already have turned aside after Satan. 
Doing what? Verse 13 is what they were doing. And the end of verse 14. God is saying through Paul, he doesn't want the widows and he doesn't want the younger ladies to give occasion for the adversary to speak evil about young wives. So rather than becoming gossips and rather than going house to house and telling things that don't need to be told, he said, look, just live a godly life. Find a friend. Make a friend. He that presents himself or herself friendly will have many friends. You always have acquaintances in life, but to have a friend is a rarity. And the Proverbs says, he that has a friend has someone that sticketh closer than a brother. And I I guarantee you, all of you in here, if you really start thinking about the relationships you have in your life, you are fortunate if you can count five people as friends. When I say friend, I mean somebody you can tell something to and they're not going to treat you any different. They're not going to break your trust and tell somebody else, even if you fall out in a relationship. If you've ever been betrayed, then quite naturally that first betrayal, you put a brick around yourself. Second betrayal, you put another brick around yourself. And when you've been hurt enough, you've got a wall around you, and you can't reach out to touch anybody. Nobody can reach in and get to you. But to have a friend, that's a powerful thing. Yeah, it's a powerful thing. So, so notice then in verse 16, if, if any man or woman believes, that believes, has widows, let them relieve them. So if somebody's got folks in their house that are that way, they need to take care of them. And let not the church be charged that it may relieve them that are widows indeed. So if you've got younger ladies in the church, he's saying, look, family members ought to reach out and do what they can to be a blessing and help them. Maybe they won't get that new car they wanted because now they've got to help somebody in the family who lost a spouse and has kids. Maybe they won't get that new house that they wanted because now they've got to help somebody else. And helping people is what Christians do. And we don't get tired of helping people. We're supposed to be patient. And then verse 17, which uh, certainly is a, is a, uh, going in another direction now, talking about elders. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they that labor in word and in doctrine. So that tells you that you can be an elder and not be a preacher. You can be an elder and hold a position in a fellowship, be an elder and be older in the church, And it says, they still are worthy of double honor, but the ones who labor in the word of God, as the scripture says in verse 18, they should be rewarded for their labor. So you don't muzzle the ox that treads out the corn. Now we're talking about preachers. And we're talking about people that labor in the word of God. Decades ago, do you realize that most preachers would minister for 50, 60 years and then come to the end of their life and not have a place to live. The churches provided parsonages for them, but when they came to the end of life, they didn't have anything. The preachers come to the end of their life, they don't have any retirement. I mean, most people in church have retirement because their job takes it out for them. Because if it was left up to them, they never had no retirement because they, were always, they would have always said they're so poor, they would have had to pay for this, pay for that, but their job took it out for them. But their whole lot of preachers get to the end of their life, and when they look back, they, don't have, they can't retire. Retire to what? Retire on what? 
Preach till you die. That's how it goes. Preach till you die. You die. So a lot of churches had the attitude, well, Lord, you keep them humble, we'll keep him poor. And working together, we believe we'll keep him in the ministry. That was the idea. So the scripture comes along then and says, the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox that treads out the corn. The laborer is worthy of his reward. There are plenty of people in church that have often said, well, I just don't think a preacher should make that much. Or I don't think a preacher should drive a, a nice car or something like that. Now, I've, I've observed out here that, you know, people who will say to you, well, I don't like to go to church because churches ask for money. And it seems like they're always asking for money. Now, they don't mind smelling a new truck every other year. And they don't mind spending a couple of million dollars on whatever kind of equipment they need to farm or do their mechanical work or people working at a hospital or something like that. But all of a sudden when it comes to a church where you got to take care of widows and poor people and missions and a pastor and things like that, then it becomes they're asking for too much money. All it is is people are selfish. That's all it is. Folks are selfish. And the reason you have so many people on television today teaching on prosperity and all these things of how to get rich and, you know, and all of this stuff, health and wealth, is because of how verses 17 and 18 had been taught for centuries. And you had kids that grew up as pastor's kids watching their parents struggle and watching the people in the church do well, and no one ever even had a second thought to even ask or inquire about the welfare of the minister. That's why. That's why we have so much of that today that's on television. The laborer is worthy of his reward. But verse 19 says, don't receive an accusation against an elder except there are two or three witnesses. That means if somebody comes to you whispering about somebody who's an elder, don't even receive it and believe it unless you've got two or three people that can account for that one testimony. Otherwise, you spend your life just repeating every accusation that you hear. And in today's society, all it takes is an accusation to destroy an elder in a church. It does not even have to be true. In today's society, with this cancel culture stuff that they talk about, they'll make it up, spread it, and then later on, months later, put a little line in the newspaper and say that this information was inaccurate. And they'll put it on the back page somewhere where nobody will ever see it. And they have already destroyed and wrecked someone's life. So if I don't have evidence, I don't even waste my time going to people about, well, you know, I heard this about you. Is this true? I'm not even going to waste my time with that, with someone who's an elder in a church. If someone or some person see someone doing something, that's totally different. The one time where I was, I don't think I've been here a year, and I was up by the bank up here, and so I needed to turn around. And I just happened to turn around in the parking lot at the liquor store. So I get a phone call. Maybe about three hours later, uh, Pastor, had, had you gone to the liquor store today? 
I said, well, no. Why are you asking? Well, somebody said they saw your car coming out of the parking lot. Really? Yeah. See, accusation, first thing comes to mind, not to call me and ask, but to tell it to somebody. To tell it to somebody. Receive not an accusation against an elder, but by two or three witnesses. And them that sin rebuke before all that others may fear. See, so if someone in leadership has gotten involved with something they shouldn't be involved with, and it's a public situation, deal with it, is what Timothy is told. That way other people understand, oh my, I don't... I don't I don't want to be on the receiving end of that and I don't want to have to have that take place in my life, you know. So yeah, a, a rebuke is when you let someone know that their behavior is incorrect and inconsistent with Christian behavior. However embarrassing, sometimes it has to be done. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without preferring one another, doing nothing by partiality. What's partiality? Forming a judgment before there's an examination. We can also say prejudice. You have a judgment formed before you engage the situation. Don't put your hand suddenly on anybody. Don't be a partaker of other man's sins. Keep yourselves pure. If you don't know somebody, don't put your hands on somebody to pray for them, to bless them. You don't know who they are. You don't know what's in their life. Be very careful about that. If you're with someone and they just say, well, could you lay hands on me and pray? Well, maybe not. Maybe so. Maybe not. Yeah. And then he tells them regarding his infirmities, don't drink any water any longer, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your often infirmities. Now, he's not saying don't ever drink water again. He's saying you've got a weak stomach, and for medicinal purposes, you can use a little wine. And whenever I read this, I've got to then go back to what was in chapter 4 and chapter 3 just to try to quickly explain Things with regard to us that are Christians. Because I always get this question. Can Christians, should Christians drink liquor, drink wine? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it acceptable? In Proverbs 31, Solomon writes concerning Lemuel. He said, he said it is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes to drink strong drink. And then he goes on to say, Give strong drink to the one that's ready to die or to the one that has a heavy heart. And the one that has a heavy heart, he says, has a heavy heart because of his poverty. And in drinking liquor, he says, they'll forget the law of God and they'll forget their misery. That's what Solomon says. So he said it's not for kings to get involved with this. And he said this is not for people who want to remember the law of God. And then for priests in the Old Testament, you remember in Leviticus 10, Nadab and Abihu went into the tabernacle drunk and offered strange fire in a censer. And the Bible says the fire of God went out and judged them, and they died. And Moses, in the word of the Lord, said to Aaron, 
Don't take your clothes off. Don't uncover your head. Don't even grieve for these charlatan sons that you had. You have the anointing of God on you. You are not allowed to leave the tabernacle and bury your sons in Greece. So Aaron had to stay right in the tabernacle after God just judged his two sons. And then here's what God said to Aaron. You as the priest will not drink wine or strong drink when you enter the tabernacle. So for us as Christians then, we're priests, and your body is the tabernacle 24 hours a day. And with regard to what Solomon said about Lemuel, you never have to drink away your poverty and thoughts of your poverty because Second Corinthians says how Jesus, who was rich, became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. So that's no excuse. But if you do use liquor, then I can promise you what's going to happen. You are going to forget the law of God. You're no longer going to be sober, and you're going to enter into a situation where you're out of character because, as the Scripture says, liquor is not for kings and for priests. So Revelation chapter 1, verse number 5, tells us how Jesus washed us with his blood and has made us all kings and priests. Pastor, are you saying that if a person uh, has drunk a little wine, they're going to hell? No, never say that. But I am saying if you're a Christian, you're a king, and you're a priest, and you ought not be drinking any more than you ought to be making it at your house, any more than you ought to be doing it at a bar tent. That That is not for us to the believers. You say, well, Pastor, in the Bible, they took uh, communion, and they had fermented wine, and overseas I've had communion with wine too. And I've also had it with unfermented wine. But you know why we don't have fermented wine in this place right here? Because we've got people that are alcoholics or recovering alcoholics, and there's no way on this planet I'm ever going to serve liquor in the church so people start showing up on communion day. Ever. Not going to do that. You said, well, Jesus turned the water into wine. He did, and you still don't have a record of him and his disciples drinking it. So if you can bring me some wine that's been transformed by the power of God, I'll drink it with you. But I do know the Gospels say Jesus sat with his disciples there. At the Last Supper, he said these words, Henceforth I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until I drink it anew with you in the kingdom of heaven. He's saying the marriage supper of the Lamb, the next time we all do this together. Not to mention the fact that all wine in the Bible wasn't fermenting. There are a lot of different ways to make wine in the Bible. The ancient Jewish formula was four parts water, one part fruit of the vine. You'd have had to drink a good while in order to get drunk. But that's how we handle that. So in the end, Paul said some people's sins are open beforehand and go before them to judgment. Some men, their sins follow after. You won't discover until later in life or months down the road. But likewise also the good works of some are manifest beforehand, and they that are otherwise cannot be hidden. So he's saying, be sure your sins will find you out. What's done in the dark, eventually, it's going to come to life. Yeah. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this lovely chapter.
It teaches so clearly things that we need to know in our walk with you. And we pray you continue to lead and guide us all. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen.